Good morning, city. Let's try that again. Like I said, uh, my name is Lester. Uh, I get the awesome privilege of being an elder at the church, as well as the youth pastor. So I really enjoy feedback and energy. So good morning, city. Jeez, that was actually really good. Um, Man, I'm so excited to be in this series. I'm so excited to be sharing God's word with you today. Uh, I just do want to pause and just say this. As a quick update in terms of what is happening in our youth ministry and our preteens ministry, man, this past Friday, uh, my wife preached at City Youth and she spoke about the power of God's word. And man, I was just really challenged by that. And I just wanted to take this moment to kind of challenge us as well as a church, just to say that there's something so beautiful, so powerful about God's word. And for many of us, sometimes the Bible is that book on the shelf that is collecting a lot of dust that we don't touch. But I want to remind you afresh that the Bible is a two-edged sword. It is the Word of God, living and active, that we get to do youth. And so many times, young people, and I think it's the question everyone asks, like, what is my purpose? Man, I just want to hear God speak. Why isn't God speaking to me? Well, He has in His Bible. In his word, he has spoken to us, but so many of us fail to pick up that book. So you're someone here and you've never read the Bible before. Man, I would honestly like to encourage you, charge you. Why not pick it up and read it for yourself? And maybe you're a Christian in the room and you've read the book before and you sometimes open up the Bible occasionally. I want to challenge us that the Bible doesn't become a to-do list item. We don't just read to be like, cool, I read the Bible, now I'm fine. But I actually dive in because that's where God speaks to us. He reveals himself. He reveals his word to us. I can't say how many times I faced the challenge and I opened up the Bible and it's almost like God was speaking directly into my situation because he is. Because the Bible is living and active. It's not some novel. It's not some good read. It's the holy inspired word of God. So we are currently in a series in the book of Acts, and this has been really cool. We've been camping out in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, and man, we've just already, that's taken us a long time to be there, just showing us once again how God's Word can speak to us. If you're new or maybe you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, I just want to get you up to date with where we are right now. So we have two disciples. They're named Peter and John. They were Jesus' disciples. They're actually part of his inner circle. Uh, Jesus has now died. He's, raised, he's been raised up to heaven. And he says to the disciples, go and make disciples. So that's what they're doing. They are spreading the good news. We see Peter preaches, 3,000 are saved. And daily, God is adding to their number. And then the next scene we see is Peter and John were going to the temple to pray as it was their ritual. They come across a man who was crippled from birth. And he asked them for money. And they say, silver and gold we do not have. And they share about Jesus. They pray for him. He is healed. He jumps up to his feet. He's running around singing praises. But in this moment of him singing praises, there's this religious institution, assembly, governance, called the Sanhedrin, which is made up of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chiefly high priests, and religious rulers. They see this miracle happening, and they stop, and they question the disciples, in whose name and what power did you do this? And they say, in the name of Jesus, this is what happened. And then now, we are part of the story where we see the Sanhedrin's response to the disciples, and once again, we'll see how the response the response of the disciples back to what the Sanhedrin says. So why not follow along with me with the Bible on the screen? I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 3 from verse 13 onwards. And this is what it says. 
Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave, the council conferred with one, an, with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them and is evidence to all the inhabitants, inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. Holy Spirit, I pray, like we've already been singing, Holy Spirit, that you would be welcome here. I pray that you would take these words of mine and that you would bring fresh wind over them. God, I pray for everyone in this gathering, that God, you would have a word specifically for them. God, we don't want a secondhand word, but Holy Spirit, I pray right now, would you take these words and I pray that everyone sitting in this room would be challenged to know you more, challenged to love you more, and ultimately, God, challenged to be your hands and feet to those around us. I pray these things in your precious name. And all God's good-looking people said, amen. So um, I have been married for the last five years. I think it's five. I haven't confirmed. But I've been married for the last five years, and it's, it's been amazing. And in every, when you're married or in most situations, when someone asks you a question, there's always two potential answers. And in this moment, my wife had asked me a question and You'll hear from my answer, maybe it wasn't the best. But let me paint the scene before I say my answer. So we were on holiday. We were in a place that was very cold. And we didn't have a car, so we were walking to and fro to different things. Uh, the night before, we came up with our plan of attack, the things we were going to do, the things we were going to go see. So I woke up in the morning. I'm a very quick dresser because whatever's there, I'll wear. I got dressed. My wife was like, cool, she'll be ready soon. Soon was 45 minutes later. While she was getting ready, I was sitting on the bed watching TV and I went into my nothing box. I wasn't thinking about anything. I was pretty much daydreaming. 45 minutes later, she walked out and then asked me the question, how do I look? To which I answered, you look round. But context, once again, she had many layers on. So I was saying, per the padding of her clothing, she just looked really round. She looked good, but round. And in that moment, as I turned to my wife, I just saw a face of shock, anger, and that wasn't the answer that she was expecting. She was hit with the unexpected. If you're taking notes today, that's my point. Point number one is unexpected. What we see happening here is we see that Peter and John are standing before the Sanhedrin. And the text says they, they see that these are common men, uneducated men. Now for those of us in the room, that just sounds like, okay, cool. Thank you for the context. Let's move on. But we need to understand a deeper context to that. That for the Jewish boy, growing up, there's only one thing that you desired, that you wanted to be when you grew up. And that was to become a religious leader. You wanted to work for God. And in order to do that, by the age of six, you needed to memorize the whole book of Leviticus, which is 27 verses and many law, 27 chapters and many laws. By the age of six, they had to be able to memorize it. If you're successful in memorizing the book of Leviticus, then from the age of six to the age of 12, you had to memorize the book of Genesis 
to Numbers, the Pentateuch, the, the Torah. You had to be able to memorize every part of it. Then you would go into the temple at the age of 12 and you would ask questions of a rabbi as it relates to the verses, but you would ask the questions in such a way that you already knew the answer. And the rabbi would perceive like, oh, the, in the way that you ask in these questions, you have an understanding of the text. That's actually why in the book of Luke, we see that Jesus is in the temple with the, with the rabbis asking questions. Then after that, it kind of feels like from the age of 12 onwards, like what happens to Jesus? We don't hear anything about him. But actually from the age of 12 to the age of 30, Jesus was in rabbi school being trained and equipped in the law. That's why when he first appears on the scene again, we see him at the age of 30 having finished his rabbi school and getting baptized. Baptism in the old tradition was whenever there was a change of life phase, you got baptized. If you had a child, you got baptized. If you got married, you got baptized. Jesus, as a sign of saying now that he's a new person as a rabbi, got baptized. So that's why we see that again. So these are the men that make up the Sanhedrin. Well-educated men, well-versed in the law. They knew all 600 laws. If you were unable from the age of 6 to the age of 12 or in between, not able to memorize the first five books of the Bible, you went and you did the craft or the trade of your parents or your dad. So these men were unsuccessful, hence why they were uneducated. They were fishermen. And here are the religious sect, and they coming before them. The Sanhedrin didn't deal with your everyday kind of laws. They dealt with the most important, most official kind of laws. Pharisees and the lot dealt with the more smaller laws, but the Sanhedrin, these were things that were coming into question. So here we see Peter and John standing before these men, uneducated, effectively unqualified. What right did these men have to stand in front of these religious leaders? We actually get the answer in the verse, and the Sanhedrin says it. They perceive that these men had been with Jesus. Church, I just want to say that off the bat before we go any further. Jesus is the one that qualifies us to do his work. There's many of us in this room, with the beginning of the year, we, we had our vision Sunday. We put names of family members, places and spaces on that whiteboard, and we said, God, use us. But then as the weeks progressed, we kind of got overwhelmed, feeling unqualified to speak to the people in our spaces, places, and relationships. I want to let you know today that Jesus is the qualifying factor. Jesus is the one that empowers you. Jesus is the one that will give you the words. These disciples, all they did was they spent the last three years of their life just sitting at the feet of Jesus. How are you doing in sitting at Jesus' feet? Are you trying to do it on your own strength? Or are you saying, Jesus, I see this task and I'm really trusting you for this family member, my work, but I can't do it. Jesus, won't you help me? And here's the thing. These religious men, as they saw these disciples, thought to themselves, man, they're not good enough to stand in front of us. And I want to read a, a piece of scripture to us. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 20. It says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will discern the discernment of the discerning. Jesus ultimately, or those texts is ultimately saying, it's not about wisdom, it's not about what you know, it's about what God is revealing through you. So I really want to 
breathe fresh wind under yourselves that God is the qualifying factor. Allow God to be the one who will equip you to speak into different spaces. Then the next thing we see is these men, are, they were in charge of making sure the law was followed. But now next to them is the crippled man who is now standing. The act of healing is not a bad thing. So the fact that this man has been healed, they proceed, they speak into themselves saying there's no charge we can bring against these guys. Yes, they didn't do it under our authority. Yes, they didn't speak to us. But there's a healing that has been formed. This is a good thing. So there's nothing we can do about it. But then the next thing we see is that sign, a sign and a wonder had happened. And this should have triggered these religious leaders to start thinking that this could have been God. Because the Jewish people had always been governed. God had always shown his faithfulness to his people through signs and wonders. We see it in the parting of the Red Sea. We see it in manna falling from the sky. We see it in coil falling from the sky. God always showed his hand of being with his people through signs and wonders. As the religious people, they should have immediately stopped and went, man, this must be the work of God. And I think they did start to think that way. But now, Here's what, where the challenge comes in. The Sanhedrin were the people responsible for taking Jesus to the cross. So if the disciples were acting on God's behalf and they were Jesus' disciples, then Jesus was acting on God's behalf, then what they did to Jesus on the cross, they would have been wrong. So instead of admitting their, their shortcoming and admitting they're wrong, they're like, cool, you know what we're going to do? We're going to call the disciples back in and we're going to charge them not to do this. Let's pick that up in verse 17 says this but in order that it may spread no further among the people let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name so they called them in and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of jesus but peter and john answered them whether it is right in the sight of god to listen to you rather than to god you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them under the law because of the people and all were praising God for what had happened. For the men whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. If you're taking notes, my second point is this, undaunted. These men had received a word from God. Go and make disciples. And here the Sanhedrin was saying, no more. Don't speak in the name of Jesus. And off the bat, before we go any further, I do want to address uh, this verse. Because this verse is often used by people in a way to go against the law. That I don't like that law. But in Acts, I see the disciples didn't have to obey, so I'm not going to obey the law. So this is civil disobedience. And I want to read this verse to us. Before I get there, I want to say that is it, per this text, is it right for Christians to disobey the law? In the context of this text, yes it is. But furthermore, we need to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So let's see what um, Paul has to say in the book of Romans. And this is what he says in Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist 
will incur judgment. I'm just going to read that part of the verse. So what Paul is saying here, he's saying that the governing authorities are actually given by God. And I just want to pause for a second. This is not a political stance. This is not a political preach. This is a preach on, based on God's word. That I think sometimes what happens is we decide which we want to obey, which laws we want to obey, and which laws we don't want to obey. Yet God is saying very clearly through the writer of Paul that we are to be subject to the law. While Paul is writing this letter, he is in a Roman prison under empire emperor named Nero, who was, as historians would say, one of the very worst empires, a godless man. He did evil things, yet through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, Paul is writing to us as Christians and those who believe in Jesus saying, we are called to submit to government. And I just want to challenge us on this because I think when it comes to submitting to government, we need to change our mindset that we're not submitting to government, but we're submitting to God. The same way wives are called to submit to their husbands as a way of worshiping and honoring God, so too are we as people called to submit and honor God by submitting to government. So don't see it as I'm giving over to government, but rather I'm worshiping God and submitting unto Him. So if I'm submitting to God, then I have to submit to what God tells me to do. Is that comfortable? No, it's not. Is that great? No, but this text tells us that God's given government the power to instill taxes. God's given the government the power to cause uh, trials and punishment for doing wrong. These are all things that are under God's hand still. We sometimes choose to divorce the two and say, this is sacred because this is of God. And no, God is not in that space. Yet I want to say to us as a church today, everything is in the control of God's hand. That no leader in even your boss, wherever you might find yourself, everyone is placed there by God. But you might be saying, cool, I want to follow the Lord. I want to follow. But inside of me, my conscience just doesn't feel okay with doing this. Well, let's define what conscience is. Conscience is this, a person's moral sense of what is right and wrong and viewed as acting as a guide to one's behavior. Here's the challenging thing with your conscience. Your conscience is informed by your culture. Your conscience is informed by your social and economical background. Your conscience is informed by your age. Your conscience in terms of what is wrong is usually up and down. It's not linear. What you think is right today, you might think is wrong tomorrow. So we can't trust our conscience to be the thing that governs us to what we will obey and what we won't. When we put our faith, we stand on conscience, we're actually standing on shaky ground. But when we stand on the Word of God, we're standing on a firm foundation. Let us be a people that will stand on God's Word, not on how I feel and what I believe to be right. Because that will always, always lead you astray. Conscience is to be subordinate and informed by the revealed Word of God. I want to say that again. Conscience is to be subordinate and to be informed by the revealed Word of God. God's Word. What is God saying to you? What is God calling you to do? There's a famous author and he says this and I'd like to read it to us. He says, Conscience is not given to a man to instruct him in the right 
to promote him to choose the right instead of wrong. When he is instructed as to what is right, it tells a man that he ought to do right, but he does not, it does not tell him what is right. And if a man has made up his mind that a certain wrong course is the right one, the more he follows his conscience, the more hopeless he is as a wrongdoer. Your conscience will lead you astray all the time, or most of the time. But when you trust in God's word, and you allow God's word to be the lamp unto your feet, the thing that guides you, the thing that directs you, you're always standing on a firm foundation. Does it mean that because I'm trusting in God that it's always going to be easy? That if I obey and submit to God that it's always going to be okay? I would like to um, remind you of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's a moment where the king creates a statue of himself and says that whenever the trumpet blows that all the people are to bow and worship him. But we find three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they are... They trust in God and they say, we can't do that because the scripture tells us that we'll have no other God besides me. So in bowing to you, King, we are placing you on the pedestal that is specifically reserved for God. So we cannot. So we see that the king gets them together, throws them into a fiery furnace. Most of us know that story. We sing the song, there's another in the fire. But the part I want to highlight is that these three men say, even if he doesn't, we still choose to obey the word of God. Even if he doesn't save us, we choose to obey the word of God. Church, I want to say to us that it's not a matter of what I get to pick and choose when it comes to the word of God. Man, I would love to give to God, but that 10% of my salary, man, could go to a lot of things. Now, we stand on a firm foundation. God says we are to give of the fruit, first fruits as an act of worship to him. It's not always comfortable. It's not always easy obeying the word of God. But I think sometimes we choose to obey because we always like, man, if I give, then God's going to do something for me. So I'm going to obey because I'm expecting something back. But what if God never? Would we still choose to obey him? Would we still choose to put our feet in a firm foundation saying, God, I'm trusting you for what you're going to do. God, I'm trusting that you are in control. God, I'm not going to trust in my conscience. Because if I'm honest to you, in my conscious being, in my mind, that's a lot of money that could go to shoes or food or something else. But in the hands of God, it's an act of worship. In the hands of God, we see the church do so much more because it's through the power of the Holy Spirit, through God doing something. So we stand again on what God is saying. And that's what we see these men again, Peter and John. They stand before the Sanhedrin and they say, you need a judge whether this is right or wrong. But for us, we cannot but tell of the goodness of God. And this cannot but tell is not a cool, uh, we don't have anything else to do today, so we were going to planning, we're planning on telling people about Jesus. This is like a deep-rooted conviction. This is holy inspired, lips anointed to preach. God did something in their lives that they just could not keep quiet about it. It was not okay for them to just sit and be like, someone else will do it. We cannot but speak about the things that God's done in our lives. And I want to ask us as a church, can we do the same? Are we 
people that are like, God's done something that we cannot but go and tell other people. I don't know your story. I don't know what your journey is. But I know where my life was heading before I met Jesus and what he saved me from. And now as I stand here, I cannot but stand and tell other people about Jesus because of what's happened inside of me. When we were... Uh, pregnant with our little boy there was a moment where through bad decisions we didn't have any medical aid and when it was time to pay for the doctor's bills we looked at each other like what are we going to do and randomly not randomly someone through the power of the holy spirit put an amount of money in our account and that was the exact amount of money needed to pay all the medical bills i cannot but speak of the goodness of god because of what it's done in my life when we start to reflect on the things that God's done in our lives, are we just cool? I'm content with this. It's okay. Or are we saying, I cannot. I can't anymore. Those spaces, places, and people in my life, I can't anymore. God, use me. I don't want to be silent anymore because people are hopeless. They need our hope, and His name is Jesus. Church, I think it's time for us to rustle up to get fired up again to be like God use us we've mentioned it many times in the series where we saw revival break out we saw people getting added to the, the disciples numbers daily and I want to ask how are we doing in this area let's pick up again in verse 4 to, uh, from verse 23 and it says this when they were released they went to their friends and reported to the chief priests and the elders and had said to them and when they heard it they lifted their voices together to God and said sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them I just want to pause here for a second the disciples had people being added to their number daily even the Sanhedrin was fearful that they were growing in popularity with the people so they had the people on their side at any moment the Peter and John and the disciples could have easily rallied up the troops and said, you know what? These guys don't want us to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Come, we are going to take it by force. We're not going to listen to them. We're going to go by force. But actually, that's not what they do. We see that they go and they pray. I just want to say that there's something so powerful about prayer. Often for a lot of us, we see it as the last resort, but there's something so powerful in saying, God, we need you in this situation. God, we can't, but God, you can. And I think this is such a flip from what Peter was before. We see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's getting ready to go to the cross. The Roman soldiers come and they get him. And there Peter wakes up from sleeping and he takes his sword and he cuts someone's ear off. That's who Peter was before. But now through the grace and the gift of the Holy Spirit, instead of wanting to do it on his own strength and his own power, we find Peter and the rest of the disciples together praying, saying, God, we need you. Holy Spirit, won't you go ahead of us? And I love the way they pray. They start off by saying, oh, sovereign Lord. The disciples didn't start praying in what they wanted. They started praying by saying, reflecting on who God is. Who is God? They were like, man, God, 
You are the sovereign one. You are the one who speaks creation into being. You are the one that spoke the waves and the seas. So God, we're going to put our trust in you. If you're taking notes and you're still with me, point number three is this is unashamed. The disciples were unashamed. They were so zealous about this idea that people needed Jesus, that they were not going to be content with just stepping back, playing in the background. They were wanting to be used by God to go to the streets so people could know. But their prayer was first, God, you are powerful, you are holy, we need you. God, if you're not going before us, then man, this is just a great motivational talk. But God, with your wind on this, it has the power to change the lives of so many people. Church, I hope you hear this. This is not some youth pastor jumping up on stage, sweating a lot and shouting, but this is God's word to us. That the time is now for the church. The church has maybe, for whatever reason, through COVID, we've kind of played the background. We were trying to figure out the church as a whole, trying to figure out what to do. But now is the time for people to rise up again. It's not that hard for us to switch on the TV, switch on the news, and we can see bad things all around us. There's not a lot of good news out there. Yet we're sitting on the greatest news of all. The fact that Jesus loves you. So if you're new in this room and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want to let you know that there's a moment where Jesus is in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. It's just before he's about to go to the cross. And he's there and it says in the text that he was with Peter and John. And he goes a little further. He tells them that he's coming back. He goes a little further. And then he falls on his face and he starts to pray. I just want to let you know that Jesus was involved and co-signed off the salvation plan. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus knew that he needed to come on a cross to die for us. But yet in this moment, as he's praying, he says, Father, remove this cup from me. And then he carries on, he says, but not my will, but your will be done. And I think in this moment, Jesus is modeling something so beautiful for us. How are we doing in saying, God, your will? God, if you are saying we need to do this, not in my power, not in my strength, if it's your will, God, I'm going to be obedient to it. Do you know that Jesus prays this prayer? He leaves, goes back to his disciples. They're falling asleep. He wakes them up, and then he goes back. And I want to do this not for showmanship, not for cool, but he effectively goes down on his knees, face to the ground says not my will but your will God through if this is still what you want me to do I will do it and I think there's something so beautiful about this position this posture of prayer that I think we neglect to do it sometimes because when your face is down to the ground and you're praying you can't see what that person's doing you can't see what God's doing in that person's life. God, why don't I have that? God, look what these evil people are doing. You're just looking down and you're saying, God, I need you. God, won't you be with me? I think for too long, we always want to be in this position of we'll do it in our own strength. God, I'm going to do it for you. And when it doesn't work, God, oh, how could you let me down? But if we would just get down in this position and say, God, I need you. I can't do it. God, we need your help. God, when we look around, it just looks hopeless. 
But God, if you would, if you would just be with us. Do you know as the disciples were praying, the ground starts to shake. There's an earthquake. And I think that's just such a beautiful uh, picture of what Jesus, the Holy Spirit was giving to the disciples, saying he was going to shake things up. Things were about to change because here were a group of people that were saying, we want to be used by you. And honestly, the course of history changed through a group of people who were saying, God, not our will, but your will be done. When Jesus eventually, he's still on his face, praying face down. He hears a rustling in the bushes, and it's actually the Roman soldiers that come. The Roman soldiers were coming to take him to a cross where he was going to die. Once again, the Sanhedrin thought that they had gotten one over Jesus because they were like, you know what, we'll send him to a cross because the cross because he's a liar. And then once he dies on the cross, we'll be done with him. But God in his goodness, God in his ultimate plan takes what we think is our plan and works it out for the good of his glory. Takes that and Jesus needed to go to the cross because on the cross, he took on all our sin, all our shame. All of that was placed on him. Oftentimes, people refer to this piece of scripture, and you'll see in the text that it says that God turned his face away from Jesus. People say it's because God so loved his son that he couldn't stand the sight to see him punished. No, the reason he turned his face is because God is so holy and so good that he couldn't even stand to see the sight of all the sin on his son. But as Jesus hung there on the cross, as he died and rose again, effectively giving us all of his righteousness, meaning that we now get to be in right standing with God. All our sin wiped away as far as the east is from the west. Church, I hope that this message of the gospel excites you all the time, that it gets your blood boiling, that you find yourself coming to the point where you're like, I cannot but share this. I cannot but tell of the goodness of God. I'm a massive Liverpool fan. They're playing Chelsea today. I really hope they win. But when it comes to Liverpool, I must say, like, I know the players' stats. I know what countries they play for. I know what team they came from previously. I know all of it. Yet today when they play in the cup final, when they win, I get nothing. Maybe a little bit of bragging rights. Yet Jesus died so I could get freedom, yet I speak more about my soccer team than I do about the goodness of God. And again, this is not something to make us feel guilty. I hope this convicts us. I hope this is stirring up something inside of you that says, man, I can't anymore. I'm going to say it again. I can't help but share of the goodness of God. I can't help. I can't keep quiet about it anymore. So church, can we stand together? Because we're going to sing in response to this. And the song we're going to sing is, there's power in the name of Jesus. Because that's where it starts. It doesn't start with a good idea, a cool concept. It starts in the authority and in the name of Jesus. And the next part it says, I see an army rising up. And church, I, that's my prayer and a prayer of our leadership team over this church. That we would be an army of people rising up. That would take spaces, places, and relationships and cultivate them for the glory of God. And as we do.
do so, we'll start to see the chains of addiction, the change of depression, the change of anxiety. Those will fall. Why? Because we'll be standing in the power of Jesus. So as we sing this song together, I don't want us to be kind of like, I see the change falling. Let's declare this. Even as you're singing, think about your workspace. Think about those relationships. Think about the people in your life and declare it over their lives that those chains are falling over whatever they may be going through. But then let's rise up, church. We cannot but share about what God has done for us. Let's sing together.